This is a Saddleback Church podcast. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. (laughs) And was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. Wow, such a powerful picture, isn't it? Such a, such a powerful picture of God's grace for us. And that's what this message series is all about, the power of God's grace. And so I just want to say wherever you're coming from spiritually today, maybe you're really far from God, maybe you come here every week, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, I just want to welcome you to a house of grace today, that that's where you are coming home to today. And we're so thankful that you are here joining us this weekend. Today we get to look at a story, one of the most well-known and well-loved stories in all of the Bible. It's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But it would be incomplete to call it just about the prodigal son because there's more than one son in this story. The story starts off with Jesus saying there was a man who had two sons. And so there was three main characters in this story. It's not just one prodigal son. There was a father, and there was a younger son, and there was an older son. Now, I say all that, and I'm going to be honest. All I'm really going to talk about today is the younger son. 
But that's because over the next three weeks, we are gonna double click on each of these characters and do a bit of a deep dive. And so this week, we're looking at the story of the younger son. And next week, Andy will be looking at the story from the perspective of the father. And then the third week, we'll be looking at it from the older son's point of view. And so we wanna make sure that you come back for every week because the series will build on each other. And also, just a spoiler alert, the, the father throws a big party in this story which is why we are also throwing a big party on the third week, two weeks from this weekend. We're having that massive party, the block party, and it's gonna be so fun with games and treats and free t-shirts for everyone who's present. It's basically gonna be the best day of your life. And so you just don't wanna miss that, right? Like, that would be a shame. So get your friends and your family to come because it's gonna be really special as we, as we, over the next few weeks, just take a deeper look at grace and how it can revolutionize our lives. Uh, this is a pretty familiar story. Probably even people that don't come to church very often are somewhat familiar with this story. But before we jump into the actual story, I want us to set up a little bit of the context of this story. So in Luke chapter 15, which is where this story is held, Jesus starts off the or the, the chapter starts off in verse one by saying, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So basically there are two different groups of people that are in the audience that day listening to this story. There, you've got the tax collectors and the sinners over here, and then you've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law over here. So two different, very, very different groups of people that are there. And the story is prompted because of that comment that was made by the Pharisee. He was like, this guy, he welcomes sinners, he eats with them, who does he think he is? What kind of holy man would actually associate with riffraff like this? And so Jesus, he tells this story in response to that. And what he's gonna do is so masterfully, he's gonna develop out these characters. And there's a younger son in this story who will represent the tax collectors and the sinners with all their wild living and the way they throw off traditional morality. They're the ones rep represented by the younger son. And then there's the older son over here, and he's representing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they're the ones that they keep all the rules and they do all the right things. But then there's the father, and the father in the story represents the heart of God. And what Jesus is gonna do through this story is he's gonna show how both groups of people are alienated from the father's heart. Both groups are trying to live their own lives in their own ways with their own solutions but they've missed the heart of the Father. And so Jesus gives us this picture of how the Father, he loves them, he initiates relationship with them, and he welcomes them home to him. It's the most, maybe the most, one of the most compelling pictures of God's grace in all of scripture. So we're gonna dive into it now. And the story starts off with a very audacious ask from the younger son. It says in verse 12, the younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So he asked for his inheritance before his dad dies. That is rude. Like that, you just, you don't do that, right? That's so disrespectful. It's basically saying, I wish you were dead. Tim Keller says, the younger son was saying essentially that he wants his father's things, but not his father. 
His relationship to his father has been a means to an end and enjoying his wealth, but now he is weary of that relationship. Every parent of a teenager kind of jokes around about the fact, you just love me for my money, right? Every time I see you, you got your hand out. But what if one day they confirmed that for you? (laughs) They were just like, oh, it's true. I actually just want you for your money. Like, that's what this guy says to his dad, and it was so disrespectful and shameful. But it's interesting how the father responds to him saying that. It says that in verse 12, so he divided the property between them. This would have been shocking to the audience as Jesus was telling this story. No one would have expected a Middle Eastern father to respond that way. They would have expected him to say something like, So the father beat the son black and blue and said, you're disowned from the family. Like that's what they would have expected in that moment. But there's no evidence that the father disciplines his son right now. He just very humbly gives the son what he's asking for. He divides the estate. Now, what that would have meant in those days is that the older son would have gotten two-thirds of the estate. The younger son would have gotten one-third of the estate. I don't know where you fall in birth order. I'm the youngest in the family. I don't think that's fair, but Andy is the oldest in his family, and so he doesn't mind the arrangement. That's how it was done in those days. Now, to divide this estate up, it would have taken a little bit of work because most of their money would have been held in land property. They would have had to sell off things, and it would have taken some time, and all of the community would have known what was happening. So just a very shameful and disrespectful thing that they had to shrink their estate by one third. It took some time for the son to gather up all his belongings, but it says in verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. All of this wealth that had taken his father a lifetime to accrue, it was squandered. It was gone in such a short period of time because of this younger son's foolish choices. You know, we all have some kind of distant country that we tend to run to. It's the place that we go when we don't want our father to know what we're up to. It's the place that we try to escape to when when life's pressures are too much for us, when the pain of our reality is too much for us, and we just want to get away somewhere where there's less pain and there's more fun, we escape to our distant country. And for some people, it's drugs and alcohol. Like you, You can't make it through a hard day without having a drink just to numb that pain a little bit. For some people, when you have a hard day, the thing you wanna do is you wanna go shopping. You want to buy something, a little retail therapy. It would just make you feel a little better to have something new. For some people, the thing you're looking for is food. Like if if you feel sad, if you feel bad about yourself, if something as hard is happening in your life, you're like, what can I eat that will make me feel better in this moment? For some people, the thing that you keep getting drawn back into is pornography. And the the real relationships in this world, they cause too much pain and they're too much work and they're too dramatic. And so you have this pseudo relationship with an image on a screen that brings you all pleasure and no pain. And that's where you run to, it's your distant country. 
For some people, it's workaholism. You just throw yourself into your work, and that's a little bit more socially acceptable, but perhaps the reason why you're doing that is because maybe you don't feel great about your relationships at home. Maybe, maybe there's some brokenness there. Maybe there are other areas in your life where you don't feel like you're keeping it all together, but at work, at work you're successful. At work you get a lot of pats on the back. And so there's this workaholism that you throw yourself into. Other people, you escape into video games or, or maybe social media or something. And it's amazing how we can spend hour after hour in front of a screen with these, with these virtual relationships instead of living in the real world because this is easier, this is more fun, and we're escaping some type of pain or some type of heaviness, some type of responsibilities that are weighing us down. We all have these distant countries that we run to. What can I, what can I escape to that will allow me a more fun reality, a more fulfilling reality, a less pain-filled reality? Can you imagine how this story might have read differently if the guy in this story had had access to a Celebrate Recovery community? <laughs> like maybe, maybe it would have read a little bit more like this. He wanted to escape the pain of his reality. But as he was packing for a distant country, he decided to call his sponsor. And all of his accountability partners rallied around him and they reminded him of the emptiness of these vices and they walked alongside him as he faced just one day at a time. Come on, Forever Family, this is our story, isn't it? Yes. But this guy, he didn't have access to celebrate recovery. And he made the very bold and foolish decision to get his inheritance prematurely and to turn his back on his family and just to dive headfirst into the deep end of sin and iniquity. But you know what's interesting to think about is that he didn't get there overnight. None of us do. It's not like he woke up one morning and everything was going great and he was just like, okay, today is the day I'm going to train wreck my whole family. Like, none of us do that. There's this quote from an old Ernest Hemingway novel called The Sun Also Rises. And there's this classic line in there. A character in the book, Mike, is going through financial difficulty. And another character says to him, Mike, how did you end up going bankrupt? And Mike replies, two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Isn't that how things happen in our lives? We end up in a distant country gradually and then suddenly. Like gradually our hearts begin to grow cold. And, and the pain and the stress of our lives grows up gradually. And our resentment begins to build gradually. And so we look for these small ways to self-medicate and to ease the pain. But eventually those small ways aren't effective anymore. And so we, we go to larger ways. And then one day we wake up and we realize, man, we are just setting off for a distant country. We are throwing off all restraint. We are just going to go for it. We are going to dive in head first. And that is where the sun is. Like he is just living that high life and he's got all the friends and he's going to all the parties and he's having all the sex and it's everything that he hoped it would be. But how many of you have been down that road before and you know, you know those things don't last. He came to the end of himself. In verse 14 it says, after spending 
everything that he had. There was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So this wild living, it finally caught up to him because it always does. You see, there's this little thing called the law of the harvest. Maybe you're familiar with it. And what it says is that you reap what you sow. And not only do you reap what you sow, but you will reap more than you sow. And also you will reap after you sow. And so there's like this little period of time where you think you're getting away with it, right? You got just wild living, wild living, no consequences. I must be getting away with it. No one outruns the law of the harvest. You will reap what you sow. And it's true both directions. You could be planting some seeds in the ground, good seed in the ground, and feel so frustrated and discouraged that why isn't there a harvest that I'm experiencing right now from this good seed? It's coming for you. Because no one escapes the law of the harvest. Not only will that seed sprout up, but it will be more than what you put in. And that is what this guy is experiencing. He is reaping all that he has sown from this wild living. And he has hit rock bottom now. He has run out of money, and he's run out of friends, and he has run out of fun as well. John Piper has a line that says, running away from God, it starts by feeling free, but it ends in utter misery, either in this life or the one to come, or maybe both. And now all that freedom and the fun and, and the relief from responsibility that felt so good at first, it turned out to be empty. It was just a mirage. It was, it was a trap. And now this Jewish guy, he finds himself working for a Gentile, which would have been disgraceful to that man. And not only is he working for a Gentile, but this Gentile raises pigs. And pigs were vile animals to Jewish people. They were unclean, detestable. And he's working, feeding these pigs. And you know what's crazy is that the pigs even have it better off than him because at least the pigs are getting fed and this guy is starving to death. And so what Jesus is doing is he's painting this picture for us of this is the worst possible situation that this guy could have ended up in. He has hit rock bottom. I don't know if you've ever woken up and just thought, I think I have hit rock bottom. Or if not, I'm like really close because I never imagined that my life could sink this low. You know, rock bottom is not always a bad place to be because there's something powerful about it that shakes us out of our stupor. There are many people who have hit rock bottom and for the very first time called upon the name of Jesus from that place. There are a lot of people that have showed up to celebrate recovery for the very first time when they finally hit rock bottom because there's something so painful about rock bottom, so painful that, that the pain that you're experiencing this moment is worse than the pain that it would take to change. There's always pain that is a part of change. But when you get to a place where you're like, I am willing to do whatever it takes, 
I'm willing to go through that pain to get out of this pain. We suddenly become very open to the idea of making some changes in our life. And so this guy, he, he just hits rock bottom. And, and in verse 17, I love how it starts where it says, when he came to his senses, that's when he decided to go back home to the Father. You see, coming to God, it makes sense. It is not just this blind leap of faith. It is not for people who have been deluded intellectually into believing in fairy tales. No, it, it is a logical next step. It is the wisest decision that we could make when we wake up and we assess the reality of our brokenness. And when we become disillusioned with the vices that we have been clinging to and we realize that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy the deepest longings of my heart, that is when we come to our senses and we come home to the Father. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote that says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Coming back to God is a logical decision. It's not just a mystical experience. So verse 17 continues by saying, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. Isn't it interesting that he always knew the way home? Like he was never physically lost. He had lost himself, but he always knew how to get there. He could have gone and slept in his own cozy bed at any time, and he could have had food to spare. He always knew the way home. So that begs the question, well, why didn't he go home earlier? Like why did it take getting to the point of starvation before he would humble himself and go back home to his father. And what I wanna propose to you today is that perhaps it was because he had the wrong view of his dad. The way that we view our fathers, it affects the way that we interact with them. And if you think about your own relationship with your dad, the way that you view him, maybe, maybe he was harsh, maybe he was cruel, maybe he was critical of you, and if you had that kind of dad, you probably tried to avoid him as much as you could. Or maybe you had a dad that was a bit of a pushover, and you knew, you knew how you could manipulate him to get him to do what you wanted him to do. The way that you perceive your dad to be, it affects the way that you interact with your dad. And we're gonna catch a glimpse of how this guy perceives his dad because he's gonna show us his little speech that he's preparing for when he meets his father again. We're gonna see how he, how he sees his father through this little speech. In verse 18, he says he's gonna go to his dad and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Now the first part was really good and, and he said the right things. He said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Do you hear that humility in his voice, the, the brokenness, the repentance that he's expressing there? This is not a guy that is trying to make excuses for his behavior anymore. 
He's not denying his guilt. He's saying, I realize that I have made some big mistakes, some very costly mistakes, and I want you to know I am sorry. His father needed him to say that. He needed to express a heart that was truly repentant. But where he goes wrong in this speech is in the solution that he comes up with. Because he says, Father, just make me like one of your hired men. Like somehow I might be able to pay off my debt to you. Sometime, somehow I might be able to earn my way back into relationship with you or earn your forgiveness. Maybe, maybe he wasn't even hoping for a relationship with his dad. Maybe all he had his sights on was that he would get some food in his belly and he was willing to commit to lifelong hard labor to make that happen. But we see in him the, a perspective of his father that is not the way that his dad wants to be viewed. But his expectation, it affected him. It affected the way he was willing to, to stay away for so long, to stay in that pigsty, even though his view of his father was wrong, even though his expectations were off. He had grown up his whole life under the same roof as his father, and he still had a distorted view of his father's heart. You know, all of us have some type of view of God. And could I just suggest that it's possible we could be wrong? Even people that have grown up in the house of God, it is possible for you to have a distorted view of your father's heart toward you. And let me tell you, it is affecting you. It is affecting whether you're willing to run to him or if you hide from him. It's affecting the way you see yourself. It's affecting the way that you interact with other people because the truth is, our view of God, it determines our approach to God. There's no way to escape that. The way that you perceive God to be, it affects the way that you approach him, the way that you interact with him. And that's why Jesus is telling us this parable. He is holding up a picture for us to say, this is what my father is like. And I know it's hard for you to believe. And I know that it seems too good to be true because you're basing your view of God on your own broken relationships with your own earthly fathers. You're basing your view of God on your own broken form of love that you humans share with one another. But listen, my father is not like that. He's different. And so as we look at this picture of the son coming home to the father, could we look at it with fresh eyes of the father's love for us? In verse 20, it says, so he got up and went back to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. I wanna read that verse again. And this time as I read it, I wanna ask you to underline or circle every verb of how the father responds to his son when he sees him. It says, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. His father was looking for him. And I have this, 
This image in my mind of the the father standing on his back porch night after night and just scanning the horizon, looking for his son, hoping against hope that maybe his son would appear again. And he's standing there one night and, and this image comes up over the hill and he strains his eyes and he said, could it be? Could could that be him? Is that him? I think that might be him. And he just, he takes off running towards his son because he cannot help himself. You guys have to understand that patriarchs in that day did not run. Wealthy landowners in that day, they didn't run. Maybe maybe a slave would run. Maybe a kid would run. But this man is not going to lose his dignity by hiking up his robes and burying his legs and running across a field. But this father could not help himself. It was the son for whom his heart had longed. And he ran to his son. And he wrapped him up in his arms. He threw his arms around him. And all that filth. And the stench, can you imagine how that guy would have smelled? A grown man living outside probably for months on end with no change of clothes and no shower, working with pigs. It was awful. Every parent in the room knows what it's like to have a dirty a baby with a blowout diaper, right? And there is no hugging and cuddling that baby. In that. It is all arm's length until we get you into a bathtub or we're gonna somehow clean this mess up. And then it's cuddles and kisses after that. But that's not how the father interacted with his son. He threw his arms around him and he embraced him and he kissed him. It's just the most, the most tender scene to imagine. And I, I just wonder how many full grown men in the world would experience tremendous healing if they had the embrace and the kiss of their father. I wonder how many of us would just weep and fall to pieces in our father's arms if we realized that he actually accepts us and he loves us with a never stopping, never giving up kind of love. This is a picture of your father. I want you to notice also where the kiss took place in this story because the order of things, it's really significant here. And I want you to notice that the the kiss came before the confession. This guy had not made his speech yet. His father just ran to him and kissed him. Tim Keller says, it is not the repentance that causes the father's love, but rather the reverse. It was the father's love that initiated the repentance. There was no earning his forgiveness. There was no earning his way back into relationship with the father. The father made that abundantly clear by this dramatic display of affection. It was such a rich, lavish love. But this son, he is operating on an old operating system. And he's so programmed to view his dad through this certain lens. And so he just launches right into that speech that he prepared for him. And he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice that he doesn't make it to the end of his speech. Remember, he's supposed to say, make me like one of your hired men. But he never even gets there because it's like the dad just interrupts him, cuts him off mid-sentence. And he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and and let's celebrate. For this son of mine, he was dead and he's alive again. 
He was lost and he is found. And so they began to celebrate. The father gives his son these four gifts of grace. Clearly they were gifts that he did not earn or deserve. But they were these beautiful gifts that the father wanted to bestow upon his son. And I want us to talk through those gifts. And and as we do, I want you to realize that your heavenly father wants to give you these same gifts. The first thing that he gives his son is the very best robe. And this is a robe that would have been saved for special occasions. It was probably the father's robe. And what he does is he takes that robe and he covers up all his shame. He covers up all of his filth and nakedness. And by putting that robe on his shoulders, he immediately reinstates him as a senior ranking family member. That this is my robe that I'm putting on your shoulders to cover your shame. The second gift that he gives him is a ring. And it's not just any old ring, this is probably a signet ring. It's one of those rings that we used to have where you would, you would press it into hot wax and it would seal a document, it would sign a letter. And, it, and by doing that, the father was giving the son his authority. It, w- it was saying that this is my identity that I am giving to you through this ring. The third gift that he gives to his son are some sandals, which seems like kind of a funny gift to give, but what you have to understand is that sandals were a luxury in those days. Not everybody got to wear sandals. Slaves didn't get to wear sandals. Sons wore sandals, not, not the hired men. And so when he gives him these sandals, he's saying, I'm treating you as a son and not a slave. Now the fourth gift that he gives is the gift of the fattened calf. And this was an animal that they had been raising for some time, taking care of, preparing. They knew that there would be some type of special occasion in the future that they'd want it for. Meat was not something that they would eat at every meal. It was, it was safe for celebrations. And when that father saw his son, he said, this is the moment we're gonna celebrate. Because this father, he took so much delight in his son's presence. And that fattened calf, it represents how your father celebrates your presence. Maybe you had a dad that made you feel like an inconvenience. Maybe you were a bother to him. Maybe you were an annoyance, but I'm here today to tell you that your heavenly father, he takes great delight in you and he celebrates your presence. You see, Jesus is describing in such detail all of these lavish gifts that the Father is giving to show us his love. Like there was, there was no holding back. This story is often called the prodigal son. And, and that word prodigal, it's never actually used in the story. A lot of times we think of that word to mean wayward. But that's not actually the definition of the word prodigal. The word prodigal by definition actually means recklessly extravagant. And so yes, the son was absolutely a prodigal. He was recklessly extravagant. But what I want you to see here is so was the father. The father was recklessly extravagant. He had extravagant grace and a reckless love for his son. Such a beautiful picture. And listen, I don't want us to miss this moment because this message, it is for 
all of us. I know that in a crowd this size and with everyone watching online, that there are many people listening to this message and you would acknowledge that you are that wayward son. You have been running from the father and today's your day to come back home. But listen, there are so many people here who, have been, who would say, no, I, I'm not like that. I'm not wayward. I run to God. But if you, if you took that posture today, you would miss the whole point of the message. Because the reality is we all have distant places where we hide from God. And there is grace, there is more grace that God wants each of us to experience. He wants you to come home and to receive his love today. A couple of weeks ago, I was working with my therapist on some really, I don't know, just critical, negative thoughts that I tend to battle with about myself. And I don't know if you guys deal with this, but like, you know, just feeling like, ah, I'm dropping all these balls and I, I just don't, I don't measure up or I'm disappointing all these people. Anybody else, anybody else struggle with thoughts like this? A few people, honest, thank you for not leaving me up here all by myself, appreciate that. It's worse for me at nighttime because I kind of do like this mental review of my day and, and I start thinking things like, oh man, it's such a stupid thing to say in that meeting. I bet everybody left that meeting thinking I'm an idiot. Or like, oh man, I really blew it in that interaction with my kid. And I can just feel so much like anxiety rise up in me and like this shame and ugh. So I was talking with my therapist about like, okay, so what are some healthy ways to process these thoughts and these feelings? And we were talking about different tools and techniques. And one of the things she said to me is, I wanna hear your view of God, like your image that comes to mind. When you think about God, what, do you, what does his face look like? What are, what's the expression on his face? What's he wearing? Where are you? And so. So I described to her this visual image that I have of God. And I, I go back to this place often in my mind. And it's me on the beach early one morning. And it's real peaceful. Nobody else is out there. And, and there's like a log that has fallen that I can sit on. And I've just got my Bible and my journal. And I'm, I'm really excited to get some time alone with, with Jesus. And, and I look up and coming across the beach towards me, is Jesus and his eyes are on me and his face is excited to see me and we walk toward one another and we just hug and he's so happy to just get some time to sit with me for a while and I described this scene to my therapist and she said Stacy that's so lovely I love that she said but what I want you to notice is that in this image of Jesus that you've created in your mind. He is excited to see you when you're already there to seek him, when you're already doing all the right things, when you're being such a good girl. And what I want you to do is to create an image in your mind of Jesus who is just as excited to see you in your brokenness, in the state of your vulnerability, when you don't measure up when you are dropping all the balls, that even then he is just as excited to see you. This is who your father is. This is the story of the parable that Jesus is telling us to say this is the kind of love that God has for you. That's harder to receive. It's hard to receive other people's love when you don't feel very lovable. 
And let's just be honest, this world does not do a good job loving us when we're not very lovable. But we have a heavenly Father that loves us differently than the world loves us. And he is saying to you, come home. You can come to your Father in your brokenness. You can come to your Father when you are a disappointment to everyone around you. You can come to your heavenly Father when your marriage is falling apart. You can come to your Father when you reek of alcohol. You can come to your Father when the whole world has turned their back on you. When you can't even look at your, yourself in the mirror because you're so covered in shame, that is when you can come to your Father. Verse 20 is the turning point of this whole story. And it says in verse 20, so he got up and he went to his father. Listen, it doesn't matter how many times you've thought about going home. It doesn't matter how many times you've played out that scenario in your head or made plans for it. If you do not get up and go to your father, you are still living in a pigsty. If you do not put on the robe that he has given you, you are still covered in your shame and nakedness. If you do not sit down at the table and partake in the fattened calf, you are still starving to death. You have to get up and go to your father. And so that is the invitation for us today. That is your next step. Would you run to the father again and again and again? He is welcoming you home. And let me tell you something, friend, he will not hold you at arm's length. You don't have a dad who stands on the porch with his arms crossed and a scowl of judgment on his face as he watches you do that walk of shame home. And he's like, oh, this better be good. That is not your father anymore. You have a father who will embrace you and give you the kiss of love and acceptance and affection that we all long for. And so today my question for you is will you run to the Father and will you receive his grace? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that this is the kind of Father that you are, that this is the kind of love and forgiveness and grace that you have for us, that even in our brokenness, especially in our brokenness, you welcome us home. And so Father, I pray for every person that's listening to the sound of my voice today that they would run to you. And for some people, they are running to you for the very first time. This is a moment of salvation for people. I pray that they would run and receive your love. Today, there are many people that need to come home. They've been gone for so long, and today is the day that they will come home back to you. Would they run to the Father, bring them home in this moment? Father, I pray that you would help all of us to see our broken places, the, the, the distant countries that we run to to hide from you. Help us to let go of those things and to run into your arms of love and grace. Would you meet us here, right here, in this moment? We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekend message from Saddleback Church. If you like this, 
please consider leaving a rating or review for this podcast. The Saddleback Church Weekend Message Podcast is a part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. Visit saddleback.com slash podcasts or search for Saddleback Church in your favorite podcasting app to see more great podcasts from Saddleback. For more weekend message resources, visit saddleback.com slash message resources.